Welcome to the Institute of Directors series of podcasts on the Shinquin Commission, the future of inclusive business, harnessing diverse talent for success. The Commission is examining the key barriers to the recruitment, retention and progression of individuals from underrepresented groups, with specific reference to disability, ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation. This series will discuss important themes that the Commission focuses on and aims to provide examples and guidance on the importance of diversity in the workplace. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Shinkwin Commission podcast series. This episode will discuss issues around LGBT equality and inclusion in the workplace. I'm Alex Hall-Chen, Senior Policy Advisor for Inclusion and Diversity at the IOD, and I'm pleased to be joined by both Professor Lee Badgett, Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and author of The Economic Case for LGBT Equality, Why Fair and Equal Treatment Benefits Us All, and by Paul Donovan, who is Chief Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management, as well as Commissioner on the IOD Shinkwin Commission. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you've both written extensively on the negative economic impacts of prejudice. Could you tell us a bit more about your perspectives on the consequences of the exclusion of LGBT people in the workplace? Lee, perhaps we could start with you. Sure. The way we usually think about this is that discrimination is bad for LGBT people, LGBTQ plus people. And that's certainly true. But uh, what we've seen is that uh, businesses would also be putting themselves at a disadvantage if they're not treating their LGBTQ workers fairly and inclusively. And then that actually has a, a knock-on consequence of being bad for the economy as a whole. So there are definitely uh, different layers of this um, as we kind of move up uh, move up in, in the scale that we're looking at. And that's exacerbated by... Uh, by exclusion in other contexts, in terms of health and education, for example, because both of those contexts are uh, contexts are places where people gain what we call in economics human capital, the the knowledge and the skills and enhancement of creativity that makes them really um, important in the workplace in terms of what businesses are able to do. So, so there are many different layers of how uh, how there are these these negative consequences of exclusion. Great, thank you. Paul, what would you add to that? Well, I, I mean, I, I agree, obviously, with, with what Lee's been saying. Um, it's interesting, I, I participated in, a, in an art project um, last year called Corporate Queer, which was about queer people in the workforce, but also about how corporates actually need to be queer in a different sense of the word, that you need people who are not thinking in the mainstream way, who have diversity of opinion. And I think if you have a, an exclusionary policy and saying that no, we're not going to em- employ queer people, well, you're excluding a whole range of views, which can be really valuable in spotting opportunities and, of course, uh, equally importantly, in spotting risks. And so you know, not only are you missing out on the talent of the skills that these people can bring, but you're missing out on the diversity of ideas that I think is, is so important. And I actually feel that, that corporates have a, a particularly important role to play in LGBTQ plus inclusivity because it is possible to be an invisible minority as part of the LGBTQ plus community, at least in many cases. Um, and there is a tendency to sort of 
to hide. And, and we know roughly um, you know, only 40 to 50% of the queer community are out at work, which is a, a shocking statistic. Um, but if you have an inclusive company, then not only are you benefiting your queer employees, but you're helping break down the prejudice of other people in the company. Um, and that, I think, is very important. We know that contact with minority groups is one of the best ways of breaking down prejudice. So if you have an inclusive company, you're not only breaking uh, down the barriers in terms of allowing queer people in to bring their expertise, but you're helping other people overcome their prejudices. And that can be very important, not just for your company, but for society at large. Absolutely. And despite everything we know about the negative economic impacts of prejudice, as you say, I mean, research from Stonewall has found that more than a third of LGBT staff hide who they are at work for fear of discrimination. In your work on um, exclusion, have you seen examples of good practice in cultivating that inclusive culture um, at work that you describe? I think from my experience, it's you need leadership from the top, obviously, but actually it's all the way down the organization. Um, because if, if you don't have a, a broad culture, if you don't have a willingness to challenge people throughout the organization, then you're never going to be able to push back against the discrimination. I can remember right at the start of my career, um, being warned against speaking to uh, a man on the trading floor um, because he was gay. Uh, and obviously the person who was speaking to me didn't realize I was gay. And they were saying, well, no, don't speak to him, he's gay. Uh, not realizing I was immediately gonna go over and, and ask for his mobile phone number, only mobile phones hadn't been invented at that stage. Um, but the point was she was using a, a really offensive term. And I didn't challenge because I didn't feel I could challenge. And that failure to challenge meant that that just became embedded. It was just acceptable language in those days. And so I think that you really need to create a culture where challenging people around you is, is very important. And that can't just come from the top. That's got to be everyone in the organization feeling willing to challenge instances of prejudice when they come across it. Absolutely. Lee, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, there, there definitely are many things companies can do. And I think some that Paul were talking about are very important, the leadership all the way through. Uh, but one way companies can also do this is through their policies. So making sure that uh, throughout that the, their, the principle of non-discrimination is embedded everywhere, both in their, you know, their practices related to, uh, to, to promotion and to evaluating managers, for example, uh, to thinking about um, how their compensation policies work. Do they somehow inadvertently or uh, just happen to, uh, to benefit people who are heterosexual, who are married to different sex partners and have kids, or are same-sex couples and all families of LGBT people included? Um, do, uh, do benefits cover gender affirmation care uh, for transgender workers? Um, is there a plan for trans workers to transgender workers to transition in the workplace? Are there policies set up to work with the individual to make sure that this is a, a process that's done well and uh, respectfully? Um, so there, there are many different things that employers can actually really do and embed in their policies and practices. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think it comes back to what Paul was talking about. It takes people to make those things happen, especially in big companies, big multinational companies, you can do something in the UK or in the United States, but maybe you don't do it in Singapore or maybe you don't do it in, in, in Kenya or where other operations are. So, uh, so employers are also uh, 
you know, needing to, to, to think about policies more globally now. They're being pushed to do that, in fact, by, uh, by advocacy groups. And I think they're, um, we, we can talk more about that, but, but I think it, in those cases, it means that um, you want to listen to your, to your workforce in different places to hear what their needs are and what their concerns are. And so that's why employee resource groups are so important and for, for companies to have good lines of communication. Uh, and that way, there are also opportunities for, for DEI leaders and companies to take advantage of travel to those locations where they might be able to uh, organize you know, discrete meetings with small groups of LGBT employees who are maybe not out at all. Uh, it also provides opportunities to, to cultivate allies who are going to also be very important, especially in those places where the, the LGBTQ community is not as visible. So, so there, there are many, many things that companies can do, and they can look to other companies who have been doing these things. And, and what we know is that uh, there's research that shows that companies who, who take these sorts of actions actually do better in financial performance and other kinds of measures. So, so there are lots of reasons for them to want to do better, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to pick up on that point around uh, the difference in policies between countries. Um, how do you think that multinational companies with presence in countries where LGBT rights are more limited or perhaps non-existent can ensure that LGBT employees are safe and able to be their authentic selves regardless of where they work? Paul, what's your perspective? Well, go ahead. So I, I, I think this is, uh, this is always difficult. Um, because you don't want to abandon, you know, say, well, we're just not going to do business in that country, because then you're abandoning the 10% of the population of that country that is LGBTQ+. Um, I think you can have a, you, you have to have a multifaceted approach. I think you have to have a very clear global and internal policy, in my view, which is, if you are homophobic, I don't care, if you're being homophobic in Saudi Arabia, you lose your job doesn't matter what the local law says, this is not part of our corporate culture. And so you've got to sort of be very, very clear on that. And then I think you, you have to vary what you offer. So you offer a safe haven in one place where you, you, you are safe in this working environment, um, but you know, we are not going to organize an illegal pride parade through the, the streets of Riyadh, but you, you are safe if you are working for us in this environment. And to make sure that uh, if an LGBTQ plus employee um, you know, wants to try and move to a safer location, for example, that they can do that um, and that you, you know, facilitate and, and you try and help your staff as much as possible. Sending a clear signal about what your values are as a company and then going to the limit of those values within the, the, the national legal settings, I think is probably the, the best way that you can help people. But you've got to be very clear about, about what you stand for as, a, as an organization. And I think increasingly so in, in the years ahead, you know, as we see um, you know, perhaps more and more prejudice coming through in the political arena. Absolutely. Lee, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, that kind of commitment is is absolutely key. I uh, Sylvia Hewlett and Kenji Yoshino have a really helpful um kind of um, schematic about how how this evolves for employers um, in, in different stages employers may be at. So the first one is the, the when in Rome stage where companies basically acquiesce to the local culture and, and, and laws and just say, we're not going to do anything. We'll, we're just going to do what everybody else does in that country. But then uh, companies may move on to, to what they call the embassy, embassy model. So within our walls, we will treat all of our employees absolutely equally and inclusively. So we will 
make sure that uh, you know the treatment is fair, that the benefits policies are you know configured some way so that they accommodate the needs of uh, of LGBT people, and then um, and then there's the um, the advocate role that companies sometimes take on in different places where they actually think about you know the fact that they're what happens to their employees at home matters as well um, in terms of how ready they will be to work and in terms of, of basic fairness and um, companies' abilities to to fully uh, uh, to, to make the workplace fully equal. That all depends on, on policies. So um, so they note that companies may, you know, kind of pass through these different stages. What I've seen is the companies sometimes are in different stages in different places. Um, so the companies don't necessarily have exactly the same uh, the, the same kind of, um, of position and, uh, you know, how, how they kind of go through those stages is, uh, highly dependent on, you know, kind of how, how committed they are to those global policies and how do they proactively look for opportunities to go in and make those kinds of changes to negotiate those changes when employees, um, who've been working in one place where their same-sex partners have been covered by healthcare benefits, you want to move them to some other place? Well, you may have to actually uh, change the policies in, in those places where, um, um, where, uh, where they want, where you want them, where the company wants them to work, but they may be reluctant to move there. So it's definitely in the company's interest to kind of uh, to, to act in this way, but that can get complicated. So I've done uh, some case studies of IBM um, that I'm still working on. And they have, uh, uh, they had some interesting experiences when they tried to do this. Uh, for example, in the Philippines, they tried to uh, enact gender affirming benefits, which they'd done in many of their locations. And it turned out there was no one in the Philippines who could provide those benefits. So they, they had to kind of pull back on that and, and uh, help develop that local infrastructure in India when they wanted to do um, benefits for same sex couples there were no insurance companies who would write those policies to to cover same sex uh, partners, and so uh, so IBM made the very I think a, a very committed decision to say, well, we could come up with some complicated workaround so that we would be able to compensate people in some way and provide them in some other way, but a uh, uh, a key official said. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. We're not going to treat people with same-sex spouses differently. And what they had to do is to use their market power uh, in buying insurance on the market in India to find and uh, to to put pressure on a on a vendor who would actually provide this coverage. So, in effect, they actually expanded options for everyone for all companies in India by uh, by doing that. So, so companies can take these. Um, can take these steps, you know, in places where they see opportunities and they see the local infrastructure where they're getting pushed by their, either their DEI leaders or by, by their employees. And they can, they can make a, a huge difference there. The last thing I'll just say about this though, is that it's clear that companies are not always comfortable doing this on their own. Uh, they, uh, in some cases, it seems like there are uh, advantages of coalition. So the organization Open for Business that you might be familiar with has done a great job of organizing businesses really around this business case to say, this means we need to talk to maybe quietly, maybe uh, more publicly in terms of doing research and that sort of thing. But we need to be in conversation and dialogue with, uh, to advocate for our LGBT employees um, with the governments of some of these countries where, uh, where there are laws that are uh, very problematic for LGBT people. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in those case studies that you mentioned, Lee, what do you think or what have you found 
has been the role of, of the board in the company's strategy on LGBT inclusion and EDI more widely? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like we're becoming a lot more uh, aware of that. And I don't know. I don't have a good answer uh, to that question. Um, but I think there, um, I think boards are places where LGBTQ people have been particularly absent as far as we know. So in the United States and the Fortune 500, if you look at all the board members, somebody has gone through and tried to see how many were openly LGBTQ and it was zero point four percent uh so four in a thousand and it's that's hardly that's hardly anyone right <laughs> i mean that's uh there it's, it's a small list and uh and that's i think uh problematic it shows that the board has not been particularly engaged i would say because a lot of these changes have happened despite the absence of lgbti people in the boards but you know but if they were there uh it might be uh it might move a little bit faster. Um, there certainly are efforts to try to do more education of people at the you know, kind of C-suite level and, and higher. And those folks are likely to end up being on boards at some point. So, so I think, uh, I think it's a big opportunity that needs more attention. Great. Uh, what do you think that um, organizations can do to try and increase the number of openly LGBT people on boards? I, well, I think that it, it really comes down to, to two things. I mean, firstly, do you have a culture where people are going to be open? Because undoubtedly, there are plenty of queer people who may be on boards, but don't feel that they can be, be open about it. I mean, the, the city of London, which I started working in 30 years ago, there was absolutely no way I was going to be open about who I was 30 years ago. It would have ended my career. Um, so you need to create that culture. That's the first thing. And then you just need to have a, uh, a genuinely meritocratic strategy and, and an approach which is free of your unconscious bias. And that's where the, the culture of the company and your, your recruitment comes in, in terms of promoting people and, and getting people um, you know, to that, that level where um, you know, they potentially can be you know, an openly uh, queer member of a, of a corporate board. Um, so it's, it's first getting people to be open and then second making sure that you make the most of the talent that you've got and that's you know, it, it's not a simple process and it's not I, I think you know, it's not something that you can solve with a nice tick box exercise from your HR or your legal department that doesn't get you anywhere it's got to be genuinely felt by the staff uh, and so on but I, I think to Lee's point I mean having allies on boards you know, is a big step forward so if you have you know, people who are very publicly uh, allies to the LGBTQ plus community, that can be an enormous help um, because it sets the tone um, and because it helps people come out at work, it helps people be more honest about who they are. And that I think is an important um, interim step. Uh, and I know that we, when I've worked with um, allies on, on our board, um, it, it, it does make a difference. It makes a difference throughout the organization our former chief exec um, uh, turned up at, at Lugano Pride one year and no announcement, no pre-announcement, no rousing speech from the podium, just turned up to, to talk to the people and walk with them. And the impact that had on the, the individuals there, I mean, it, it's still being talked about years later, very, very powerful about signaling, be open at work and you know, opportunity is yours. Yeah, you know, another thing that I think about this, the, the past comments made me um, 
think about was I think there's an important role for um, for some of these uh, monitoring groups or these groups who do these indices of um, of LGBT inclusion in this kind of context because I think um, we have definitely seen them in the in the U.S. the Human Rights Campaign's Corporate Equality Index. Just that alone was enormously influential in pushing companies to adopt non-discrimination policies for gender identity. Um, and I think that kind of um, that kind of scrutiny or kind of looking over the shoulder of what companies are doing and reporting it publicly uh, is probably uh, another way that uh, that we would see maybe at least more openness about the people who are already there on the board. Um, there'd be some incentives for companies to, to, uh, to encourage their board members who are LGBT, but not out to be more out. Um, and to, uh, to make sure companies are thinking about diversity when they're, when they're looking to board members. So I think there's a definitely a role for, uh, uh, for, for outside LGBT groups to, to, to put some pressure on companies there. And just, just to pick up on what Lee's just said, I'm, I think it's very interesting. The world economic forum is considering, um, LGBTQ plus diversity as a, a metric for its global competitiveness index. So at a, a, a macroeconomic national level, you know, this sort of pressure, I think, is also going to continue to, to build. And of course, you know, the companies that are that are attending the WEF and that are part of the WEF are going to be seeing that actually this is something which is which is really being used as a yardstick to, to judge um, corporate and uh, broader economic performance. Absolutely. And, and you talked a bit about, um, you know, transparency uh, around LGBT members of boards. Are there other areas of, um, of data and data collection that, that you feel com uh, companies should be transparent about when it comes to LGBT equality? I would love to see more information on, um, you know, on who's hiring LGBTI people, uh, openly LGBT people. Uh, we are going through um, lots of discussions about that here in the U.S. about um, accountability for companies, um, and uh, they have some have started to publish their uh, their workforce stats at a, at a fairly high level, a general level. Um, in, in DEI reports, they're kind of buried, you have to go look for them, but they're, they're often there. And a few of them are doing that for LGBT people. You know, we don't have a, uh, you know, we have, you know, some kind of rudimentary statistics to compare them to, to see if companies are, are as representative, uh, for LGBTQ people as they are for, um, uh, for, um, uh, in the population. Uh, but, you know, so, so it's not clear that, you know, differences, it's not clear exactly what differences mean, but it at least gives companies a place to start, and it gives um, it gives people who are uh, enforcing non discrimination laws, it gives academics, it gives uh, advocacy groups kind of an opportunity to see who's really walking their talk. For me, at the end of the day, it's about policies and treatment of people who are in your workforce and getting people who are LGBTQ into the workforce. You know a lot about one side of that, you know, in terms of the policies. We don't know anything at all, really, about what companies are doing, uh, how, how well they're doing, other than for these few companies that are tracking this, which is happening increasingly, um, but it's much rarer for them to, to reveal that publicly. So I'd like to see more public uh, presentation of those data. And we always run into the problem, of course, that because it is a, a, an invisible form of, of prejudice, people aren't necessarily out. And of course, that varies by age group and by culture. Um, I mean, uh, and also legality. You, can you actually ask somebody, uh, you know, are you 
uh, LGBTQ+. Um, it, we do it in the UK. It's, it's part of an internal survey in the UK, but we can't do that in some of the countries we operate in, for example. Um, which is very frustrating from an economic point of view. You can understand why um, you know, some of these measures have been put in place, but um, it is very frustrating uh, to, to get that. So I, I agree with Lee. I mean, I think that, that what we have to focus on so much is the policies and you know, the, does a company generally treat its employees as being equal? Um, because that then tells you that the culture is going in the right direction. The measurement of that is always going to be problematic with the queer community. Well, at least perhaps with with my generation. Um, I, I, you, Gen Z is probably going to save the world and, and are far more uh, honest about who they are. And it's, it's remarkable to see. Um, so maybe the younger generation will have a, a different approach. But it's still problematic, I think, with, um, with Gen X. Well, but we are seeing uh, on surveys that have been done for a long time here in the U.S. that there is there are many more same-sex couples who show up. And now is that because there are more couples coming together and forming? No, this is really a lot of it is about just being more willing to answer questions on a survey. And 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 Gen Z, you know, in the U.S. is like you know fifteen to twenty percent of them say that they're LGBTI in some way on some surveys. So it's kind of yeah, that's going to change the world in a lot of other ways. It's already I think blowing businesses' minds. Uh, that I've uh, talked to about these these data. Great. And how important do you both think LGBTQ plus role models are in business? And how impactful do you think senior leaders sharing their personal stories can be? For me, I think it's very important. Um, I would say it's not just senior leaders. I, 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 you know, I, I think I have been more willing to be more open about who I am at work because of Gen Z, because the you know, the younger generation are so much more open. And I'm sitting there, it's silly the fact that I'm not being more public about you know, bisexuality and not playing a larger role in um, in advocating um, for um, LGBTQ plus equality. So yes, I think that it is very helpful to have senior leaders come out with their experiences, but it's also very helpful to have peers, younger uh, 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 members of staff come out with their experiences as well. I think it is across the board because as we were discussing earlier and you know, Lou was mentioning earlier as well, it's it's throughout the company. It's the culture that you need. Um, and that isn't just the rousing speech from the podium. That's the, you know, the water cooler conversation type thing as well or whatever the Zoom meeting equivalent of a water cooler conversation is these days. That's where I, I think you, you make the difference. But yes, I think that... Um, Certainly, I, I have made a, a conscious effort to be a lot more public in, in the last few years um, to provide leadership, not just in terms of the economic research that I do, but leadership as you know, a member of management of my company um, to the younger generation and to talk, I think, honestly about the experiences that I've had being you know, a, a member of the queer community in the corporate world over the last 30 years, because 30 years ago, it was horrendous. And you know, I was so deeply in the closet, I was in Inania, and why was I doing that? Why was I refusing to come out? And what did that make me feel like? And then talk about the experiences and the change, because that, I think, um, helps motivate people to be more honest, and it, it helps allies, it helps non-queer um, uh, uh, community members to also uh, recognize the need for change. So. Um, yes, I think we, you, where, wherever possible, um, transparency and, and honesty from senior uh, leaders is, is helpful. Yeah, I think those are uh, great points. And I think um, that 
that culture, the history of secrecy and invisibility just makes visibility so much more important for, for everybody. And I think, you know, Paul, I don't, I don't know about you, but I have colleagues who are not very out uh, at, at my university even. And, you know, I think we're still having to be role models for people, you know, of, of our same generations uh, and, uh, and also for the younger folks, but they're, you know, and, and they want us to be authentic. You know, they know if we're not talking about being queer and, and we are, you know, they, they want us to be out. They expect us to be out. And I think, you know, maybe that's a, that's a helpful role model um, kind of process as well, but they're also looking to each other. So I think that's also really important to, uh, to, to point out and they're finding out about each other in many different ways uh, and serving as role models to each other in in many different ways. So I think that's, um, that's a that's a great way to uh, to, to think about it. Um, I think the the publicness of it also I think helps in terms of um, of changing how uh, non LGBT people around us also kind of relate to us. I think Paul, you alluded to the fact that you know there's this um, this idea about the contact hypothesis. The more uh, people get to know LGBT people, the more their attitudes will change. So I think we, you know, we just become role models in lots of different ways. And, and I know that sometimes for, uh, for my peers, it's been helpful for them in thinking about their own kids, uh, not so much for themselves, but thinking you know, like, well, if my kid turned out to be uh, LGBTQ, you know, how would I feel about that? And, and it's, you know, that's, that's, cultural change. I mean, that's, that's really very deeply profound. Um, um, so it doesn't have to be leaders. It really could be everybody. So I know of one corporate project at IBM, uh, they have something called the out role models. So in uh, different parts of the world, they have people who sign up to be these role models to, to, to talk about, you know, IBM's work on LGBTQ issues and, um, to uh, put it in in the language of the people that they work with, literally to uh, to uh, do videos to encourage people, for example, to uh, uh, to self disclose on the self ID form that IBM has um, to talk about Pride events. So there are ways that companies can kind of take this into account, also throughout these levels, these generational levels and hierarchical levels. So I think there's there's a, a lot of really great work yet to be done there. And I, th I think things like um, you know, internal organizations, so employee groups, like we have a, a pride group at, at UBS, where you know, very often the leadership of the pride group is not necessarily senior, senior management. Um, you know, I go along as a member of, of the pride group to, to listen to um, you know, people who are not necessarily as senior as I am in the organization, but talking about their experiences or aspects of you know, their job. And, and that I think is, is hugely helpful. Um, because I'm, I'm you know, learning all the time from these people as, as much as anything else. And uh, as Lee was saying, perhaps similar to, to what happens at IBM, we also have, we have a, a mentoring scheme and one of the categories that you can put in for mentoring is LGBTQ plus mentor, um, uh, which I participate in. And I got it the wrong way around. I thought I was able to sign up and get an LGBTQ plus mentor, but they want me to be one, which is actually, I quite like the other way around as well. But that's actually also great because it, it it allows it to go more global, particularly in these days where virtual mentoring is becoming a lot more of a thing. Um, and that I think can be really, really helpful as well. Um, so the, the sort of the democratizing influence of employee networks um, can be very, very useful in promoting a whole range of different role models within an organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about the deep cultural change that's required to create inclusive environments for 
LGBTQ plus people in the workplace. Do both of you worry at all about diversity washing, so similar to greenwashing um, when it comes to sustainability? Do you worry that um, there are companies who may make the right noises about EDI, particularly say during Pride Month, but don't do the necessary work? And if so, how do you think they can avoid that? You know, it's interesting. My my students are very uh, concerned about that. Um, they, they talk a lot about it because I think they see it as being inauthentic for companies. So it looks really bad if if a company is seen at Pride one day a year and then the rest of the year is not really walking their talk. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, you know, point to specific places, but I think um, companies need to uh, recognize that that somebody is somewhere is holding them accountable. It might be their customers. It might be their employees. Um, might be their boards uh, someday. Um, but they are. Um, the, but that you know that people notice when um, when companies are seeming to be inauthentic in that way. Um, and it, but it's complicated for companies. I know there's a a long tweet uh, tweet chain that I was reading the other day of somebody who had pulled out some very big, well-known advocates of LGBT inclusion. And alongside their pride efforts, they put their corporate contributions to anti-LGBT popula- uh, po- politicians in the United States. You know, so there, so there's definitely, there's, there's a, a very, maybe a broader set of things that companies are now going to have to start thinking about in terms of what uh, what that means exactly in terms of um, the things they do that they don't necessarily associate with an LGBTQ kind of statement. So uh, so it's, it's, it's tough. And, and so there are people, you know, on social media, more, I would say more than in organizations uh, here in the U.S. kind of pushing companies to to, you know, to, to line up better. Uh, I think mostly those, those conversations are, uh, are relatively quiet at this point, but there definitely are people noticing those differences. And I think that there's, I mean, there's always been sort of you know, the, the company which sprinkles rainbow glitter over its logo for the month of June and, and then does nothing or, or uh, as Lee's been saying, you know, actively works against the interests of, of the community. Um, I think what's actually perhaps a little bit more problematic is is those where you know, the HR department ticks the boxes and then nothing really changes and and you know the, in the day-to-day interaction sort of casual homophobia is still sort of part of the culture that's that's probably in my view more damaging um, than you know sort of a a rainbow covered June and then nothing for the rest of the year because that's insidious and that's that's very damaging to the company in the long term but also to, to society at large I agree. I think social media um, is going to play a larger and larger role. The other group that I think that is going to play a strong uh, disciplining role in this over time is going to be investors. My view, and it's it's probably an oversimplification, but my view is that diversity and inclusion today is where sustainable investing was about 15 years ago. But I think the DEI agenda is going to be far more rapid in terms of take up because the economic case for this is so blindingly obvious and i think investors are increasingly have for some time increasingly being asking questions about gender and about race um and and sort of the makeup of corporate boards and so on and i think sexuality is going to increasingly be part of that um so i'm hopeful that the you know the the diversity washing story is going to become less and less plausible, A, from the 
the customer point of view, uh, but B, from the investor point of view. And if both your customers and your investors are against you on a particular issue, you, you've got to change or you die. So I think that's going to be, hopefully, the, the direction we go in. Absolutely. And just to finish, if you were speaking to a business leader who has brought into the, you know, the argument that this is a really important area for them to focus on, and they were looking to take their business's first steps towards greater LGBTQ inclusion in the workplace, what would your suggestion be for their first steps? To me, that's an easy one. It's talk to your employees. Uh, find LGBTQ employees who are willing to to be open about their experiences and, and what they need from from the employer, and uh, and take that seriously uh, and understand that that those are the people that you uh, are starting with. Um, uh, it may be that they're and if you get a group who you know, are very happy with how things are, then find find another group, you know, to kind of dig a little bit deeper because sometimes the the ones who are the most visible are, are able to be visible for some reason that uh, has not uh, hurt their success in the company, but uh, but there may be other people who are struggling in different kinds of ways. So I would say that, that to me is the first step. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree very much with that. I think if, if you are a straight cis chief exec, you're not a leader when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues. And that's the first thing that you've got to grasp. Um, and then once you've got that, then you can implement the policy but um, you know, and decide what best policy to follow. But you know, it, it's your staff that have got to lead on this, I think. But then the next thing I would say is look to what your competitors are doing because they may be <laughs> uh, they may be you know poaching your people they may be out competing you in, in uh, the labor market or maybe even the product market so you want to make sure that uh, that you're kind of living up to to what other people are now expecting to see at your company. But there is also of course a, a growing trend towards at least um, intra industry. LGBTQ plus groups. You know, pride networks talk to one another. Employee networks communicate with each other, um, and you know, there are opportunities there to learn from best practice. If you're taking your first steps, I mean, I suppose the obvious question is, why on earth are you taking your first steps now? You're 50 years too late. But if you are taking your first steps, then there are there's a wealth of resources out there. I mean, Lee mentioned Open for Business, which um, we've both been involved with. Um, that's that's one classic example. But there's countless other examples where you can get the help. You've just got to ask for it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul and Lee, for your time. It's been a fantastically informative discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Directors podcast. For more information on the work of the IOD, including that of the Shinquin Commission, please visit our website at iod.com.